You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. The fact that we have not seen, as far as I can discern, those scarring effects and that women seem to have, despite all of the exhaustion and burnout and stress and grief that working women, among others, have experienced these past few years, they seem to have emerged collectively stronger than ever. And I think that is worth celebrating. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. So we are just about six months into 2023, and so far, it has just been a confusing year for the economy, to say the least. The unemployment rate is low, the job market is strong, and yet it seems like we hear about a new round of mass layoffs every couple of weeks. Inflation has cooled off this year. That's good news. But we're still well above the Fed's target inflation rate of 2%, which has led the Fed to raise interest rates 10 consecutive times. And then there's the ever-looming R-word or recession, which we've been talking about on this show as far back as last June. And yet so far, it hasn't materialized. And a few leading economists recently told CNN that Although they believe we may see a recession eventually, by the way, we always see a recession eventually. These things are cyclical. It's not going to happen in 2023. We have also lived through the failure of three major banks holding a total of $532 billion in assets, as well as a 
debt limit crisis that threatened to collapse the U.S. economy. Very fortunately, that was avoided in the final hour. All of this is just a lot. It's a lot for professionals to keep up with. It is more than a lot for regular folks to keep up with. And if you're confused about what it all means, how you should feel about it, and what you should do with your money, you are not alone. That's why today we're taking a step back. We're looking at the big picture of what happened so far with the economy this year and what could happen next. And we're doing it with one of my favorite economy watchers, journalist Catherine Rampell. Catherine's an opinion columnist for The Washington Post. She specializes in data-driven journalism. She's also a politics and economics commentator for CNN, a special correspondent for PBS NewsHour, and a contributor to Marketplace. And she's here to help us answer some of these questions, big and small. Catherine, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. Great to be here. So let's dive right in. In May, you wrote an article entitled, What the Heck is Going on with the U.S. Economy?, which I think is a very accurate summary of what people have been thinking. The year is halfway over. How would you describe what's going on right now? Are we in a good place? Not so good? Yes. (laughs) I think the answer to that question is, unfortunately, yes. As you just mentioned, there are some really good indicators in this economy, particularly in the job market. There are also some very poor and disappointing indicators in this economy. Inflation is still well above the Fed's target, even though it has come down quite a bit. Prices are still growing faster than we want them to be. They're just not growing as quickly as they had been a little while ago. And then if you look at consumer sentiment, consumers are really dour in ways that I think a lot of people find puzzling given the strength of the job market and given the fact that inflation is not as bad as it had been. And there's been a little bit of a question about why. Why are people so much more affected by inflation, for example, than the availability of jobs that are out there. And and how do you interpret this? There's a lot of debate about that. And I come from a place of even if you find it confusing that consumers feel this way or voters feel this way, the best approach is to try to understand where that's coming from rather than to just dismiss it and say, oh, they must be brainwashed by a pessimistic media or whatever. I hear that a lot. Or, you know, Republicans have been downplaying the strengths of this economy. And so it doesn't really mean anything when consumers say that they're pessimistic. So, yeah, there's a a lot of complexity (laughs) to the present moment. It seems like almost every day we get another story about that pessimism, and it shows up in different ways. Today, I was I was reading, I don't even remember which of my papers I was reading. It may have been yours, but there was a story about how revenge travel has pretty much gone away, and we're not spending the money that we were spending on travel. We're feeling much more conservative. Why do you think consumers are feeling the way that they're feeling? I think it's a combination of things. I think that if you look at the dollars coming into people's bank accounts versus the dollars going out because of higher prices, basically comparing wage growth in dollar terms to expense growth in dollar terms, particularly at the 
bottom part of the income distribution, people are not coming out ahead. There are a bunch of indicators, a bunch of sort of standard metrics that obscure that a little bit. But if you just look at like how much people's expenses have changed, particularly at the bottom of the income distribution, their earnings are not keeping up. You also have the fact that a few years ago, basically early in the pandemic, there was a lot of government support. Things like an enhanced, expanded rather, child tax credit. You had several rounds of economic impact payments, known colloquially as the stimulus checks. You had more generous than usual food assistance, unemployment insurance payments, a a whole host of other things because people were really in trouble. And for many people, that influx of cash actually it was weird, but it enabled them to have better living standards than they maybe had even pre-pandemic. But that also led to this big surge in buying. You know, people had a lot of cash coming in and had some forced savings as well, right? Because depending on where you were in the country and how conservative you were about COVID, you may not have traveled very much. You may not have gone out to eat very much, et cetera. So people had a lot of money, in their bank accounts, they used it to spend mostly on stuff rather than experiences, you know, that revenge travel that you were talking about. So they they spent it on, you know, so one of the canonical examples early on was like people were buying gym equipment, not going to the gym. And so and meanwhile, there were supply chain problems, et cetera. All of that contributed to strong inflation. Now people are running down their savings. They had all of these savings, again, because the pandemic forced it and you had government policy that supported that. Given price growth and the end of a lot of those policies that I was just talking about, people have run down their savings and they're feeling like they're behind, you know, that they're they're having a lot of trouble keeping up with the whether we're talking about their living standards during the pandemic or prior to the pandemic. So I think a lot of people feel genuinely feel really strapped. Yes, there are plenty of jobs out there, but you only have so many hours in the day. (laughs) So you can take a, a second or a third job to try to keep up your living standards. But for many people, that's not practical or not desirable or impossible. So I think the end result is I think it's reasonable that people feel so constrained about their finances right now. Yeah, I think what you're saying is very true. And also, although there is so much talk about inflation moderating, I think what people forget is that that doesn't mean prices are going down. They're going up just a little bit more slowly. So it still costs more to buy eggs and milk and all the different things that you have to get when you go to the grocery store or any place else. We've been hearing a lot of talk for a very long time about recession. At the beginning of 2023, about two-thirds of the economists polled by the Wall Street Journal predicted a recession would hit sometime this year. Many people, those who stress about these sorts of predictions, have been stressing out about it for some time. It hasn't happened. Now it's looking a little more unlikely. Do you think that we're headed for a recession based on what you see in the data. Do you think that this is something that individuals should actually worry about? If you had asked me a few months ago, I think 
my answer would have been very pessimistic. That is, I thought a recession was quite likely in part for all of the macroeconomic measures we've been talking about, employment, inflation, what's going on with interest rates at the Fed, et cetera. I was also very worried about debt limit brinksmanship, which would have been a, you know, an unforced, <laughs> basically a manufactured recession in the sense that if Congress had decided to default on our debt, to not pay our existing bills, that would have probably set off a global financial crisis and lots of really bad things would have happened in the economy here, in the economy elsewhere, that would not have been inevitable, would have just been caused by government dysfunction. That, thankfully, has been resolved. So I think that major source of worry for me is gone. And the other numbers have come in, again, better than expected, particularly on the job market. Month after month after month, economists have been forecasting that job growth would slow and that maybe, you know, every month some companies add jobs, some companies eliminate jobs. When we talk about job growth, we're talking about the net, like how many jobs are out there in total once you account for the hiring and the layoffs and the resignations and everything else. And every month or almost every month, I think it's like 13 out of the last 14 months, economists had been expecting not outright job losses on net, but that there, there would at least be less job growth than ended up being the case. They've been surprised every month. And look, forecasters usually get stuff wrong. That's not unusual. It's very hard to like get the numbers right with precision. What's weird is that they've always been wrong in the same direction. They've always been underestimating the strength of the job market. And again, there's been this puzzle about why. It's like everybody kept thinking the economy was going to slow and potentially fall into a downturn. It hasn't. And it's hard to know how to process that when you're thinking about the future. If we've been getting it wrong month after month after month, maybe we have been, you know, sort of estimating the strength of this job market and of this economy, and maybe a recession isn't in the offing. I think that would obviously be a great outcome. We don't know that that will happen, in part because I think we haven't seen the full impact of some of the major shocks to the economy or major developments. So like when the Fed raises interest rates, as Gene, as you just pointed out, they've been doing, you know, pretty consistently since March of 2022, although there may be a pause coming quite shortly. That doesn't take its full toll on the economy right away, that it takes a little while for that to move through financial markets, for businesses to react, for home builders to react, for consumers to react, et cetera. So things are looking better. It may be that all of that pessimism wasn't wrong. Maybe it was just early. Like we, it could be that once we see the full impact of these interest hikes, amongst other things, that will have more of a drag on the economy or, or plunge us into recession. I don't know. I, this is a long-winded way of saying... <laughs> I wish I knew the answer. I'd be a very rich woman if I could predict with some <laughs> precision when the economy was going to turn. But everything is just so muddy right now. No, I, I completely get it. And I think for individuals, consumers, investors, the big question is, so what? 
right? The big question is, okay, I'm listening to all of this information. I'm reading the headlines. I'm following the indicators. I want to know about my personal economy, right? I want to know what I should do with this information in order to make sure that my own personal fortunes don't suffer or take a step back unnecessarily. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, those are the questions I'm going to ask. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. We are back with Katherine Rampell, opinion columnist at The Washington Post. We're talking about the economy. And my big question is, so what do you do? When you take in all of this information, and there's a lot more, right? There are headlines about AI and how AI, Goldman Sachs predicts, could replace as many as 300 million full-time jobs over the next decade alone. And the Keenan Institute found that 8 in 10 women work in occupations that are vulnerable to being replaced by AI. And that's just one piece of the puzzle. So when you are looking at your personal finances, the personal finances of your readers, what's the playbook? It's not like there's a clear financial strategy that emerges from this set of conditions we're dealing with, in part because the kinds of things you might invest in if we have a recession tend to be a little bit different from the kinds of things you might invest in if we have high inflation. Because one implies interest rates falling and one implies interest rates rising. So what do you do if you have both of those things? They're kind of in tension. This is the problem that the Federal Reserve is navigating. If they're worried about a weakening economy and they're worried about high price growth, should they raise interest rates or not? But it also matters for consumers. So there isn't necessarily an obvious safe haven to go to right now. I think when I get asked by my friends about, you know, what's the reasonable way to react to the current economy, besides like throwing up my hands and saying, I don't know, usually I say things like, well, if you have to make a really big purchase that requires financing, do it. You know, if you have to move or for whatever reason, you know, you need to buy a house, you need to buy a new car, something like that, do it. If you don't have to, you might want to wait, particularly since borrowing is expensive right now. Interest rates are high and they may well get higher in the near term. But if we have a recession, they may come down. Again, it's hard to know for sure because of all these other factors. But things like that, you know, for the individual, it's probably a good thing if they're not splurging on a ton of 
luxuries like revenge travel or, you know, all the things that I've probably been spending too much money on, Broadway show tickets and things like that. Probably it would be better if I cut back on that for any individual, you know, to do that. There is this sort of paradox that if everybody cuts back at the same time, that's bad for the economy. It's called the paradox of thrift, because if suddenly all consumers stop spending, that can basically cause a recession or contribute to a recession. But for the individual, it's like, think about, you know, pay attention to your budget. That sounds obvious, but I think for many people in the past few years, they have not maybe been pinching pennies as much as they normally had because all this money was in their bank account that maybe they didn't normally get to enjoy. Presumably that's changed as price growth has been weighing on people. Inflation has been weighing on people. But it's about, you know, being a smart consumer and making sure you are in a decent financial position. If, you know, heaven forbid, the worst happens, we have a downturn and you suffer a job loss or a cutback in your hours. What if you are one of those people who is in a job or in a career that looks like it is at risk, whether it's at risk of AI or at risk of some other trend that's underway. If you were in retail, it's been a very, very tough time for a lot of people. How do you approach looking at lining yourself up to benefit from where the economy is going in the future? There is obviously a lot of uncertainty about where the economy is heading, where various industries or occupations are heading. So it's hard to know for sure. There are some useful tools out there. So for example, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics regularly releases forecasts for what kinds of occupations they expect to experience more versus less growth. Some of that has to do with technological change or policy change. So for example, I believe one of the occupations that is expected to have pretty strong growth in the years ahead is a wind turbine technician particularly as renewable energy technology has advanced, as policy has changed, and as there's been, you know, a a revamping of the energy infrastructure environment. Same thing for a lot of healthcare occupations. That's not about technological change, but it has to do with how the economy has evolved, how the demographics of our country have evolved. As the country has gotten older, more demand for certain kinds of workers and companies and industries, et cetera, to deal with problems people face as they're aging. So you can get some sense. Again, we don't know for sure how something like AI will ultimately affect the job landscape. To be clear, there have been disruptive technologies over and over and over throughout human history that have displaced a lot of people. Throughout generations, there has been change, and some people are hurt more than others, but pretty much every time in the past, there have been new opportunities created, as well as opportunities lost. So it's about thinking strategically, what are things that the economy needs, that the country needs, you know, in terms of jobs? What are things that technology cannot do, that I can Mm -hmm. do. Historically, these kinds of technological advances mostly replaced human labor, physical labor. 
And manufacturing, for example, is much more automated than it used to be, which is both good and bad, obviously. And now we're talking about disruptions to more creative talent. And what does that mean going forward? Well, there, you know, humans also have social skills that robots to date have not been able to replicate. So there may be opportunities there, you know, for therapists, coaches, things like that. And I think if you look at some of the forecasts for what jobs will grow, you know, personal trainers, there are often things, you know, you think about what, what humans can do that, that technology can't. You mentioned the debt ceiling and the angst around the debt ceiling and the suspension of the debt limit now through 2025. Personally, that's like not long enough for me. It boggles the mind that we're going to have to go through this in another couple of years. And who knows if the climate in Washington will be better or will be worse. Do you see this coming to an end anytime soon, that there will be some sort of resolution that means that the country just doesn't have to go through this sort of agita? I wish there were. I have long advocated for getting rid of the debt limit altogether. I think it serves no purpose other than to be held hostage and periodically threaten a global financial crisis. You know, that Congress makes decisions about how much it will tax and how much it will spend when it passes budgets, when it changes policies related to, you know, Social Security, Medicare, et cetera, when it changes policies related to the tax code. You don't need to then, after the fact, say, we're actually not going to pay, decide whether or not to pay for the consequences of those prior decisions. I think it serves no function, essentially. I would love to see it gone. That said, if you ask Joe Biden, the president of the United States, whether we should get rid of it, or you ask a number of other high-level politicians, they have generally said no. I think there's so much confusion among the general public about what the debt limit is because, again, it's this, like, completely superfluous thing about deciding whether to make good on bills you've already committed to that I, I think there's a fear that if we got rid of it, people wouldn't really understand it. They think that just means the government can newly spend much more than it could before when, again, this is all decided during the budget process anyway. They can decide to spend more money or not. So I, I fear that the sort of political economy surrounding this makes doing the obvious right thing unlikely to happen. President Biden has indicated that he might look into, is there a constitutional option? I'm not a constitutional scholar, so I don't know, but there is language in the 14th Amendment that says something to the effect of the validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. We don't really know what that means. So maybe there's some kind of escape hatch so that we don't end up in this situation, but I think more likely than not, we, were, we are likely to end up in this situation again, although it depends a little bit on who's in the White House, who's in Congress, et cetera. To date, Republicans have, as I said, have been more likely to vote against raising the debt limit, use it as sort of to extract ransoms than Democrats have. I very much hope Democrats don't say, you know, turnabout is fair play. And in the future, if there's a Republican president, Democrats play the same game. Again, they, for the most part, haven't to date. I hope that doesn't change. But in the absence of getting rid of this thing altogether, yes, somebody is going to take the hostage again. I fear, in the next few years. Catherine, I want to end this interview on an optimistic note. 
And so let me ask you, because look, there's a lot about what we've been talking about that's heavy stuff to take in. But what about the economy do you feel good about right now? I think it's great that unemployment has remained so low, near historic lows. It's ticked up a little bit recently, but that's awesome news. And in particular, I think it's awesome news that women are doing as well in this economy. Women workers are doing as well in this economy as they have been. And by that, I mean early in the pandemic, thanks to a combination of childcare disruptions, schools being closed down, and women being more likely to work in industries that were affected by the pandemic, whether we're talking about like food services, hospitality, healthcare as well. A lot of healthcare got shut down, ironically, during the pandemic. Women dropped out of the labor force, were laid off in large numbers. And there had been this, well, you may recall the talk of the she session, right? You remember that nickname? Yes, we talked about it a lot. There had been this fear that that episode would have long-term scarring effects for women workers, that it wasn't just that they were losing their jobs at that moment, but that they might be set back a generation. You know, whatever career trajectory they had been on had been interrupted, and we would see reduced, you know, women's employment for a very long time. And in fact, the opposite has happened. It's sort of confusing, but it's great news in that if you look at what economists refer to as prime working age workers, so that's generally people age 25 to 54. So that's considered prime working age because it's like after the traditional college going years and before the main retirement years. So for among prime working age women, record share of them are in the labor force, a record share of them have jobs. And again, that's not what you would have expected from the narrative a few years ago. And I think there are different ways to interpret that that I'm trying to puzzle through. Is it about the increased availability of remote work, for example, that maybe there were a lot of women, particularly women who have young kids, for whom balancing a career and family responsibilities was impractical or undesirable when that required a commute, but now they don't have to commute, they have more flexibility, and they're able to work. Is it about the fact that employers just need a lot more workers? And so, you know, people are coming back into the workforce because they're seeing enticing job offers. I don't know. But I think that the fact that we have not seen, as far as I can discern, those scarring effects, and that women seem to have, despite all of the exhaustion and burnout and stress and grief, that women among others have experienced, working women among others have experienced these past few years, they seem to have emerged collectively stronger than ever. And I think that is worth celebrating. I hope it's for, you know, good reasons. It looks like it is. But either way, the fact that we haven't had the bad outcome, I think, is worth celebrating. It is certainly worth celebrating here at Her Money. So thank you for that. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for the education. We can all use a dose of it every once in a while. Where can our listeners find more about you? So my main job is that I write a column twice a week for The Washington Post, mostly about economic issues and related policy issues. 
I also appear on CNN, PBS NewsHour, and periodically on Marketplace. We will be on the lookout, and you have a great social following as well. So if people are looking for you there, they can find you online. Catherine, thank you so much for this. Thank you, G. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. We are back with your mailbag and my daughter, Julia Chatsky. Julia, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Summer is in full swing over here. How's it over there? Yeah, I love the point in the calendar year where the spring allergies die down a little bit and I feel like I'm able to breathe again. And I know you got allergies from me, so apologies about that, but I hope you're feeling better too. Yes, definitely on the mend. So excited to enjoy the season. Let's dig in. We've got some questions today. All righty, sounds good. Our first question today comes to us from April. She writes... Hello, I'm a longtime fan and listener. I have a question on where I should be contributing the 3% of my income that is above and beyond my company's retirement match requirement to a Roth or a 401k, and I think you may be able to help me figure this out. Here's the scoop. I had been contributing 9% of my income to my 401k and also taking advantage of my company's 3% match. My company requires at least the 9% in order to receive the full 3% match. A couple years ago, after hearing on the Her Money podcast that a good rule of thumb is to save 15% of my monthly income in order to meet my retirement goals, I increased my contribution to my 401k to 12%. Now, I have been enjoying the pre-tax benefits on this extra 3% that I've been saving for a few years. However, in 2021, I relocated from California to Washington State, where there are no state income taxes, and though I hadn't questioned the extra 3% 401k contribution initially, it recently occurred to me that perhaps instead of putting this extra 3% into pre-tax 401k, I wonder if I'd be better served in the long run to pay the tax now and contribute that 3% to my Roth since I currently do not pay any state income taxes. A couple other details as you consider what makes sense in my situation. I am 46 years old, married, and filed jointly with my spouse, and our adjusted gross income is $164,000, so I am eligible to contribute up to the 6500 annual limit to a Roth. The 3% amount I'm questioning calculates to $3,244 annually. 
Also, I plan to retire in San Diego, so go back to the land of state income taxes. Here's my question. If I were to be successful with my dreams and planning and move back to California in retirement, would I have to pay California state income tax on any of the distributions that had been contributions made to a Roth while living in Washington state income tax-free? Thank you for your guidance. Very good and very, very detailed question, April. So I am not a CPA. I just want to say that off the top. But no, I don't believe you would have to pay taxes when you move back to California. The state taxes, interestingly, is not the reason that I would guide you toward a Roth, although I do think that having some Roth money in addition to regular taxable 401k money is a good idea. And the reason for that is that when we retire, we like to have some flexibility in where we want to pull our money from based on our income tax situation in any particular year. And having money in both taxable and non-taxable buckets enables us to do that. Also, you and your husband earn a nice amount of money, and the Roth gives you the ability to not pull money out of that account ever if you don't want to, i.e., there are no required minimum distributions on a Roth account. The other thing I would say is that I'm not sure because you didn't mention it if your company offers a Roth 401k option. Many companies these days allow you to contribute both pre- and post-tax money. Having your accounts all in one place where you can see everything with one log on to your benefits portal I think is easier. I think it's easier to maintain consistency in your investment portfolio. It's easier to rebalance if rebalancing is something that you do on the regular. And we've just had an improvement in Roth 401ks where starting in 2024, they too will have no required minimum distributions. So puts them on an equal footing with Roth IRAs. So I would say two things. Yes to the Roth. Roth concept in general, but check with your employer, check with your benefits department to see if you've got the Roth 401k option before you go and open an account with a Roth IRA. And thanks so much for writing. Want to take the next one, Jules? Yeah, let's kick it. Our next question comes from Kathy. She writes, hello, I have been a member of the Her Money community and listened to the podcast for years. It has helped educate me on personal finance so much without feeling intimidated or stupid. Thank you so much for that. Wait, Jules, can I just stop right there for one second? Kathy, first, thanks for saying that. I mean, I, I appreciate it. And nobody should feel intimidated or stupid when it comes to their money. I mean, the personal finance system, the financial system in this country was in large part set up to be confusing by people who just wanted to sell you things. And so if you're feeling intimidated by anything, the thing to do is not put your money on the line. Take a step back, figure it out, ask your questions, and then go forward. And so thanks for pointing that out, Kathy, and and I'm glad that we were able to help. But let's turn to your question. I'm about to turn 59, and I'm going through divorce. 
In addition, I have a chronic progressive disease and would like any suggestions on how to best plan for it when negotiating our settlement and spousal support. I don't know how you plan for something so unpredictable, but I am an anxious mess. I'm a patient advocate working online, but if I either lose a big client or am unable to work, then what? I don't know how to potentially account for that possibility in a settlement. Any ideas? I'm working with the Certified Divorced Financial Analyst, but I am not impressed. My emails aren't being answered, and she seems really disconnected. So I'm doing some of the research myself. Obviously, I'll need to add in the cost of health insurance since I'm currently on my husband's. Where do I get those numbers? There's so much to think about, and I can't trust my MS-addled brain. I fear getting through the divorce and realizing I should have accounted for something else I didn't think of. I should note this is a very amicable divorce, and neither of us are trying to hurt the other. We'll recognize we'll always be family because we share two daughters. Thanks so much for any help you may have to give. So, Kathy, I'm so sorry that you're going through this, both the divorce and the chronic illness, the fight against MS. I know that it is a slog, and I also know that it's unpredictable, as you say, but you're thinking about this in the right way. First, off the bat, fire that divorce financial analyst. Just fire her. I mean, if she is not answering your emails, if she's not giving you the service that you need, then you should be working with somebody else if you want to work with somebody else. I've got a few recommendations, and we'll go back to your email, and I will, I'll send you some names of the people that I would work with. Because digging into the finances and sorting it out in a way that sets you up for the future is absolutely paramount. There are two things here. Unfortunately, you're, and you know this, you're past the point where you could qualify for any sort of a disability insurance policy, but you do need to think about your long-term health care needs. So that means a bridge to Medicare and a pot of money that lines up and gets you where you need in terms of your care for the future. And that could be taking a sum of money and investing it. It could be taking a sum of money and looking to see if there is any sort of a potentially hybrid long-term care policy that I don't know if you would qualify for anyway. So I do believe that you need the help, but I believe that you need it from somebody who is focused on helping you. As far as the health insurance goes, that's a concern in my mind. The typical rules are that you can stay on your husband's plan via COBRA, but you can only do it for so long. And you will need to get a different policy down the road in order to continue your health insurance until you're old enough to qualify for Medicare. Whether or not you're better off financially staying on your husband's plan or immediately buying a plan of your own on the exchange is really a financial question. And I would look into those numbers, think about whether or not you can get a plan that's as good because you need a good plan with the benefits that you need and the doctors that you want to see by doing it yourself or if it's better in the short term to stay on your husband's plan. I'm really glad it's amicable. I think that there's a lot 
to sort out and a lot to sort out in how you choose the assets that you take for the long term as you split the proceeds. My preference is that you look to assets that are growth assets rather than those potentially tied up in a piece of property that may or may not suit you as you age. So a whole lot to think about here. I am going to get you a couple of recommendations, and I'm going to look through my database to see if there are certified divorce financial analysts that deal particularly with people with chronic illnesses. I suspect that we may be able to find one or two. So you will hear from me. Thanks for sharing. And again, I'm really sorry that you're going through all of this. It is a lot. Julia, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you're sitting there in your 20s and things just happen as we age, you know, and and when I talk to you and when I talk to your brother about just making sure that you're saving, that you're thinking about protecting yourself for the future, this is why, because we just don't know what's coming our way. Yeah, totally. I think you said it perfectly. If you have any other money-related questions, we would love to hear from you. Just send them our way by emailing us at mailbag at hermoney.com. Thanks for being here, Jules. Thanks for having me. And we are going to take a quick break. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you, and we have been there, too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties. Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. We are back with your money tip of the week. The decision to buy a home is up there as one of the biggest choices we'll make in our lives. And you may be wondering if this year is the right year to take the plunge. While there are many factors to consider, your credit score, your other debts, even the time of year, a big one is the fact that the average 30-year mortgage rate is hovering around 8%. What does that mean for you? Well, for one, higher monthly payments. Yes, you can always refinance when rates drop, but refinancing isn't free. While home prices are cooling, my advice is to wait it out a bit. And if your credit score isn't the best, work on improving that so that you can buy your dream home when rates subside. For a complete list of tips on buying a home in 2023, visit hermoney.com. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Catherine Rampell for breaking down what's going on in the economy and how that affects our personal finances. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. This show is produced by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, and you can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. 
Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.